Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a high and exalted throne, the edges of his robe filling the temple. Winged creatures were stationed around him. Each had six wings. With two they veiled their faces, with two their feet, and with two they flew about. They shouted to each other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heavenly forces. All the earth is filled with God's glory. The doorframe shook at the sound of their shouting, and the house was filled with smoke. I said, Mourn for me. I'm ruined. I'm a man with unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips. Yet I've seen the King, the Lord of heavenly forces. Then one of the winged creatures flew to me, holding a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has departed, and your sin is removed. Then I heard the Lord's voice saying, Whom should I send, and who will go for us? I said, I'm here. Send me. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. There's a fairly uh, standard pattern that biblical writers use when they tell us how they have been called by God to the work of their lives. The pattern usually starts with some acknowledgement of the present circumstances in which the person finds themselves, followed by a description of their experience of God, followed by an invitation from God to live life differently. And sometimes there's a symbolic act that illustrates all that has happened. And then there is a resolve to go and to do what the divine challenge has invited. Now Moses saw a burning bush out there in the wilderness. He was tending the sheep from Jethro's flock. When all of a sudden he sees a bush that is burning, and yet even though the bush is on fire, its leaves and its branches are not consumed. And as Moses makes his way to that phenomenon, the voice of God says, Take off your shoes, Moses. You are standing on holy ground. And then God invites Moses to his life work to go to Egypt and to set God's people free. You know the name Gideon? One of my favorite judges. Gideon was uh, 
a leader of the people of Israel during the time of the judges. It wasn't such a great time. The people of God were in the promised land, but the surrounding tribes were still vexing them. And Gideon, well, he had to go about his daily work. He had to separate the wheat from the shaft. Now, I've only read about this, I've never done it, but apparently you take the grain, the, the plant, and you pulverize it pretty hard, and when you do that, you separate the grain from the stalks. And then you tick, pick up the grain, the stalk, and everything, and you throw it up into the air. And the breeze carries the shaft away while the grain falls back to the ground. That was the task that Gideon was about one day. But he was a little tentative, a little cautious, because every time you throw that stuff up into the air, you get a little bit of a cloud. And Gideon's concerned that the Midianites will see the cloud, their armies will come, they'll take the grain and probably take Gideon's life at the same time. So Gideon decides that he'll go about this task in probably a very inefficient way. He'll crawl into a wine press, which is like a big barrel where you would stand and stomp grapes, and, and he would throw it up probably not much more than two or three feet above his head. Gideon is terrified. Driven by hunger, captivated by fear, he just tosses it up a few feet making far more laborious the task. And then the great punchline comes. The angel of the Lord appears and looks at this timid, cowering person in a wine press and says, Gideon, you are a man of great valor. That was the beginning of Gideon's call. He became a great leader over the people of Israel. Now Isaiah's experience of God is shared with us in the sixth chapter, and that text was read a few moments ago. And from the reading of the text, I can't tell if the prophet Isaiah is in the temple or not, or if the vision that he has brings him there. But there in the temple, he sees God, sitting on the throne high and lifted up. God is so high and so lifted up that the hem of his robe fills the temple. 
Now, I was thinking about that, and I looked down at the hem of my pants. It's about eh, three-quarters of an inch. So just to get the scale of what Isaiah is saying, God is so big. God is so glorious that the little cuff of his garment fills the whole temple. The temple would be the largest building in Israel. God is so great. God is so big. God is so much more than the temple and so much more than the church and so much more. God is glorious, high, exalted. Isaiah sees the seraphs, they would be angels, flying around God. With two wings they cover their faces lest they look upon the holiness. And with two wings they cover their feet, probably a euphemism, not for feet, but for the full body that one does not appear before God naked. And with two, they fly. And all the while they fly, they sing God's praise. Holy, holy, holy. The Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Then one of the angels flies toward the prophet Isaiah with a flaming coal from a fire. When I preached this sermon at 4 o'clock Saturday afternoon, I had four kids in the room, so I said, don't try this at home. <laughs> the coal touches the prophet's lips. Symbolic of a word that burns within him, a word that burns to be spoken. Your sin forgiven. And then Isaiah summons the courage. God says, who can I send? Here I am, Lord. Send me. That was how Isaiah experienced his call. For in the days of Isaiah, the nation of Israel is in great threat. The Assyrian armies are growing. And there is a sense among the people that the weakness of their nation is in some ways tied, not just to the geopolitics of the day, but they have forgotten how to live as a holy people, that they treat the poor in Israel as poorly as the Hebrews were treated while they were in Egypt. And God has something to say about that kind of treatment. So Isaiah becomes the spokesperson one of the scholars I know who studies the prophets quite through most of his life sums them up quite powerfully. His name is Walter Brueggemann. 
And he says this. The prophetic tasks of the church are to tell the truth in a society that lives by illusion. To grieve in a society that practices denial and to express hope in a society that lives in despair. The prophetic tasks of the church are to tell the truth in a society that lives by illusion, to grieve in a society that practices denial, and to express hope in a society that lives in despair. Part of our church's administrative board's work over the last year was to revise and restate the vision statement of our congregation. And I'm very, very proud of the work that was done. Now, a mission statement is a statement of who we are and what it is we want to do. A vision statement is a statement of what we're reaching for, what we long to become, what we will work for together and bring it to pass. And so the board has spoken. We strive to quiet the conflict among all people by creating a compelling environment that fosters spirituality, communal, community engagement, and social justice. When I read that statement, my heart quickens. There is energy forming in me around those words. And my prayer for the time in front of us is that that will happen for all of us. And chief among all the good things that this statement says is creating a compelling environment. One of the things that the board all agreed on is that sometimes as a congregation we can get lulled into sleep. We can forget that what we do, what we say, matters. And that God still matters right now. And that we can approach the things to which we are called with a little more enthusiasm. That we can compel one another, goad one another on to greater faithfulness. 
that maybe one of the things we can all work on together to become more faithful is to develop a deeper sense of urgency about our ministry. Not just busyness, but touching again the lifeblood of what matters most, what is important to us. Well, you know, I think there are some good reasons for us to get a little complacent. I know that it's been true of me. In a few months, there will be a very large meeting of United Methodists where a decision will at least be attempted to be made relative to the participation of members of the LGBTQ community. And it's been a long 40-year conversation. And there's always uncertainty about how that conversation might unfold. And so I do find myself a little hesitant, wondering what will happen and what it will mean. You know, kind of like a muscle sort of contracts, rests a little bit when it knows something big will be called forth soon. Things will either improve and the United Methodist Church will become more inclusive or things might get worse and the United Methodist Church might become less inclusive. And there's always the possibility that no one will get a majority on anything. And after all these years and all of this consternation, we end up right back in the same place where we have been. But we don't know what will happen. But in March of 2019, we'll still be a church. We'll still be here. We'll still be gathering as a people of God. And so what we do matters. So let's not allow ourselves to become complacent to put all the power out in someone else's hands. We are still here. We are still embracing a mission and a hope. What we do still matters. One of the things I'm reading from a number of different church leaders is suggesting that that what the church could be in the next generation is that we could become the institution in the world that teaches people how to be more loving. I've told you about many of these people. Norman Wordsba is one who writes in that vein. Brian McLaren writes in that vein as well. 
that the critical task that the church can embrace is to be a laboratory of love where we can help one another to become more loving in all that we do. Now, of course, there's a little bit of arrogance that runs through my brain when I say that. I don't need to be taught how to love. I, I get it right. I know what that is. But I'm not looking at Kathy when I say it. <laughs> the truth is, we can all learn how to be better at loving other people, at caring for other people. And I think the vision statement speaks to that. Let us become a compelling environment. Let us goad one another on toward holiness. And let that be the word that burns in us as we speak. Now, I came across a story about 10 years ago that I did not clip and write down. And I've been trying and trying to find it. I'll retell it to the best of my ability. And if you know where that story is, I'd love you to tell me where I could find it. But the way I remember it is there was a queen who ruled over a queendom and part of her uh, activity was to send explorers out throughout the world. And on one day, one such explorer came back after a long journey to distant lands. And he came back with many, many treasures to share and to show. And as he was unpacking the harvest of his journeys, he would describe each thing. And he got to one plant toward the end. It was fairly nondescript, and the queen was curious as to why the explorer brought this particular plant back. And the explorer said, well, I understand that when it blooms, it is the most beautiful of all the plants. Where I got it, well, they just spoke of its beauty over and over again. The queen was pleased and asked the explorer to plant the plant that it might bloom, that all might see its beauty. And the explorer replied, well, I'll plant it, but there's really no big rush. It takes a hundred years for this plant to blossom. And all of a sudden, in the wonderful eyes of the queen, there was urgency. She said, if it's going to take a hundred years to bloom, plant it today. Plant it 
today. My hope and my prayer is that our new vision statement is such a plant that we plant it today. That today we seek to become a compelling environment. That something burns on our lips like on Isaiah's lips. That we quiet the conflict by creating a compelling environment that fosters spirituality, community engagement, and social justice. May this truth live and grow among us. Amen.